0: people used to know their local reporters because they were just in their communities and they saw that these people were not these like elitist people on high. They were really kind of of the people. And it's really sad that a lot of those local news organizations have gone away.
1: From the recording studios of Reconstructing Judaism, straight to your cell phone.
2: Or other listening devices.
1: For the convenience of your own time and space.
2: This is Trending Jewish, the Jewish podcast about everything.
1: Dun 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 dun.
2: <laughs> Good job, Brian. Thanks. So, I am Rachel Burgess here with my colleague and co-host
1: Brian Schwartzman. <laughs> Did I think
2: to, did you have to think about
1: that? I did. What who am I really? It's a question we all should ask. The unexamined life is not worth living.
2: I don't even know how to follow up with that. That was pretty that was pretty deep, Brian. You just managed to sound like go from confusion and and startled state of mind to philosophical.
1: Yeah, I generally don't have an in between. <laughs> Um, so speaking of the philosophical, help us get more downloads.
2: Yeah. Spread the word. You know, we're doing, we've gotten well over 10,000 downloads for our podcast. And if you like your, if you like us and you want to hear future episodes, make sure that you subscribe to iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Castro, wherever you can get podcasts. We're there and you can also check us out online listen to our podcast on our website at trendingjewish.fireside.fm
1: and we're part of an amazing organization that's um that's reconstructing Judaism for for our time um, training rabbis uplifting communities so if you if you like the work that we're doing and and want to support it and want to support an organization that's really Got its eyes on the Jewish future. uh, Make a gift at reconstructingjudaism.org slash support.
2: So, and then you're thinking about the Jewish future. One thing that we talk about, I think we think about is what, especially nowadays, we're thinking about the media and we're thinking about our newspapers and Jewish news. And so I think um, our next guest, I think, is a very brings a very interesting perspective about what the news today is like and what that is like in that world and trying to navigate Jewish values and working as part of the media.
1: Yes, clearly a rising star. Somebody was hired by the New York Times at like 24. I, I don't know. And, and really has um, is or isn't, isn't a journalist of the future is already there.
2: And with that, Talking to the next generation of journalists, here's our conversation with Zoe Greenberg.
1: Zoe Greenberg grew up in the Mount Airy section of Philadelphia as the daughter of Reconstructionist Rabbi Julie Greenberg. She graduated from Yale in 2013 and began working at the New York Times in 2016. She's a researcher for Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist Nick Kristoff, as well as Charles Blow in the opinion section and also reports her own stories and she lives in Brooklyn. So welcome Zoe Greenberg. Thank you for joining us. This is a a cool, uh, I I don't know what what the word is, but Zoe and I were reuniting after, it gotta be more than 10 years because I interviewed you when you were, were in high school you won a a, a, yes. com- a competition for a documentary film, and now here you are.
2: I'm really curious what it's like to work at the New York Times because it feels like in the journalism world that's like being, um, it's like being signed to the Yankees. I don't like referring to the Yankees, but I feel like that's what it's equivalent to. So, what's it? What's that experience been like for you?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's very exciting and it's really cool to be around. You know, the best journalists basically. In the country and kind of getting to learn from them and seeing what they do and how they do it and, you know, also just the platform of the times being able to write for it is really incredible because people actually read it and talk about it and, um, you know, your, your stories actually can make an impact.
1: How about um, so? What what do you do on a day to day basis? We know you you write and report your own stories, and you also work with um, some of the best known columnists there. So, can you can you break that down for us?
0: Yeah. So basically, my so I'm a researcher for Nicholas Kristof and Charles Blow in the opinion section, and that means that I fact check their columns and I do research for them. Um, so, like on my first day, Nick asked me to, um, to research how many people had died from slipping in a bathtub versus terrorism in, um, in 2016, I think. So that was my first assignment and it was, you know, I had to track down how, you know, who, who, um, quantifies how many people died in a bathtub and is it different if you slip or if you drown and you know which one he wanted to count and then cuz the pu- the purpose of the column was to say that more people die from slipping in a bathtub than from terrorism in the US which is true and i you know found the facts to prove it
2: wow it sounds like from all that research you are the person to bring to trivia do you think the do you think jeopardy's <laughs> next for you or
0: there have been some attempts to do some trivia in the opinion section. They have a Facebook Live uh, trivia contest, but I don't know if I would actually be that good because it's all extremely obscure and like often not really on pop culture. It's it's not like widely available um, or widely interesting knowledge, I'd say. <laughs>
2: The bathtub
1: one might be yeah. good. That that you could throw that into a conversation, like a yes. little known yes. fact.
2: That's a good dinner dinner table conversation when you go to you know go to a cocktail party. Not quite sure what to say. Well, let me tell you about how many people have slipped and died yes. in the bathtub.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I do that, and then I also um, I also report and write my own stories. So that's kind of more in my free time. I will write stories for other sections of the paper and report them out. And then also for Nick I produce his he has a twice weekly newsletter and he used to have a blog so I would commission pieces and I'd edit pieces for that blog.
1: And you're not yet traveling with him to some of the
0: No, I'm not. Difficult did, areas he travels to. No, I did have a hand in, you know, combing through the applications. He runs a win a trip contest for college students. So uh, one college student wins to go on a trip with him, a reporting trip with him. So I get to see all the applications to that, but I don't get to go myself.
2: (laughs) You don't just slip your own in there.
0: (laughs) I know, unfortunately.
1: (laughs) So I, I don't, I don't know you that well, but I, but. The little we've interacted, you seem like you've got the resume and kind of the composition to do anything you wanted. So, why in in 2018 or 2016, whenever you started, choose to jump full on into to print journalism at a time when the print journalism model is 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 threatened or challenged or however you want to say when when um you know there's there's a low level of trust in it. Um, You could, you know, I could go on and on. Why, you know, why now at a time when, you know, a lot of, a lot of people are fleeing from the field, actually?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. (laughs) One I ask myself, too. (laughs) No, but. I'm not trying to talk (laughs) you out of it. (laughs) I mean, to me, reporting is just one of the most fun jobs in the world. You basically get to talk to people all day. You ask them questions that you're just genuinely curious about. You can ask them really personal questions and it's not rude. You can ask them really basic questions and, you know, they still think you're legitimate. So that's really fun. And then you can go and write up the story based on, you know, your ideas around how it all fits together. And that's such an exciting thing. And then you can actually see your writing have an impact on real people's lives and real policy. Um, You know, so that's all what drew me to reporting and to writing. And I've, I entered the, I entered the industry, you know, when it was already kind of falling apart. Like I've never been part of it when that wasn't happening. So that was just kind of part of my experience of it. I, I had an internship at the Oregonian, which is um, Oregon's daily newspaper. And in something like my third week at this internship, they fired half the staff. And it's just, I mean, it's been like that at every place I've been basically. It's just, you know, print journalism is obviously undergoing huge change and that's just kind of part of it. But it doesn't make me think that, you know, reporting is not useful or it does and it also doesn't make me think that there's not a career in it because I think that even as those old models kind of die or change, there's still gonna be a need for news and for reporting and there'll still be new, you know, new structures. But, you know, that said, that is one of the exciting things of being at The Times is that it's it's obviously you know doing doing pretty well and it's not about to die out
1: right i mean i mean I've heard it argued at a time when the influence of the the regional newspapers as uh, you know as institutions have have been weakened that the Times and the wall street journal's their importance is is just even more so than than a generation ago um, I guess i want to I want to ask um, we hear so much now about the breakdown in our in our civil discourse and how you know folks who are getting their information from the New York Times aren't talking to folks who are getting you know getting their information from Fox News or or Breitbart or whatever i mean I guess I'm wondering what you're thoughts are on that and and what you see either your role or the times role in in kind of restoring this this mythic civic dialogue we're all we're all hoping for
0: yes i mean i do think to some extent it's an it's a mythic civic dialogue but you know i do think that it's true that people get their information from different places and there's not necessarily a lot of overlap in how people are understanding the news or, you know, what pieces they're reading. Um, I do think that this year especially has been interesting to see how some stories have kind of transcended that. I think the, um, the reporting on Harvey Weinstein and then how that really affected tons of different industries and really people from all over the country, you know, different classes, different races, different professions, um, and actually, had real world impact in that way is a good example of how the media can how the media can investigate stories that matter to people and affect people across the political spectrum.
1: I mean, it's am- Tell me if I'm wrong, but I mean, obviously, the Me Too movement that that reporting kind of spurned is very social media, very, very kind of now, but. The way that story was reported, to the extent I understand as an outsider, was very, was very old school. Just tracking down people who, and and trying to convince them that it was in the public good to talk to something that was either embarrassing or that they didn't want to talk about. I mean, it would that was that was my take of it. I don't know if you got you got more on the inside. That's
0: right, and. Emily Steele, who was one of the reporters who wrote about Bill O'Reilly and ended up uncovering you know, that he had settled with women for millions of dollars over sexual harassment. The story she tells is she was trying to talk to a source to go on the record about the harassment. And the source said, "I can't, I can't talk tomorrow. I have a Pilates class in the morning. And Emily said, okay, well, I'll come to the Pilates class. And she flew across the country to LA and went to this Pilates class, showed up next to this woman and talked with her and convinced her to go on the record. So it definitely is, you know, kind of old school shoe leather reporting. Wow. That's
2: incredible that, (laughs) you know, the kind of of links to be able to tell something. So, and especially that story is something that's so important. I think there's a lot of thought, um, that the reporter is, you know, the enemy that's going out and trying to dig up all the all this dirt and destroy lives. But you think about how much good happened out of that kind of of, out of those stories and out of that reporting and how it was told that really great things had happened.
0: Yeah, going along with that. I think that kind of ties into the decline of local journalism, and it's it's pretty sad. And I heard um, Lydia Paul Green, who used to be at the New York Times, and now she's the editor of Huff, of HuffPost, uh, talk about this. But basically, the idea that you know people used to know their local reporters because they were just in their communities, and they saw that these people were not these like elitist people on high; they were just kind of local. Well, local people who had the best interest of their neighbors at heart and would kind of you know uncover corruption in city council or you know on the school board or whatever and were really kind of of the people and it's really sad that a lot of those local news organizations have gone away or you know don't have a lot of money and now it's you know people who are in New York or in DC who are writing these stories and it's it feels less like it's kind of of the people but of course there are still you know great local reporters who are doing very good work
1: right and i think patch was supposed to really hyper localize reporting and and to the extent i followed it it didn't really didn't really take right i mean
0: yeah i mean in new york we had dna info and the gothamist which were both really good but they were they were just shuttered by their billionaire owner Although I think Gothamist is coming back as part of WNYC, which is the uh, public radio.
1: So I know, I know you're not a a movie critic, but we've just, we've seen this, um, I guess, I guess the times have, have, uh, not the New York times, but our, our times have uh, brought about kind of a rejuvenation of, of, of the journalism movie genre. I just happened to watch, I just happened to watch the post over the weekend. And, and I was a, I was a little let down by it. Um, I was wondering if do you have a do you have a favorite uh, journalism movie? Is there one that that inspired you, or or that or, or yeah. not, not I mean, so much? I was much. let
0: down by the post too. I just thought it wasn't. It was it was sort of too cinematic, and it didn't feel that I don't know that accurate or that moving. But then i I recently rewatched Spotlight, and I do love that oh, movie. Such a good I movie. Think. Yeah, that makes investigative reporting look so cool and fun. So, who are you
2: hoping plays you in a movie
0: someday? <laughs> like,
2: once you, oh, wow. you
0: uncover the big story
2: and change the world, because <laughs> you're going to do that. It's it's <laughs> it's destiny for you. Who are you hoping plays you in? Oh wow! Uh, I think Oscar we might movie. be too
0: far off to even consider. You know, <laughs> these are important things to think about. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll have that. I'll I'll keep that in mind.
1: Interesting though, Michael Keaton, who was who was in Spotlight, he was in the paper, which uh, from like ninety three or ninety four, which is really over, uh, over overlooked. It's it's sort of a day in the life of 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 a fake New York New York Post. And, oh really? And, and, I've never seen that. And um, yeah, I I think it came and went, but I, I I I thought it. There were some great newsroom scenes in there. If if uh, folks out there know. haven't haven't seen it, um. Yeah. I know Rachel was really curious about this. When when we when we first when we first met and you were you were a student at at one of the was it a Germantown Friends or I forget where you went at uh, Springside. Springside, right, in right in Chestnut Hill in, in Philadelphia. Yeah. You were you were really interested at at a pretty young age in issues of uh of race and class. I mean has that has that carried through in your in your journalism career or I mean is that is that something that you're still thinking about and 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 grappling with?
2: We should also back up a little bit because we because we should also um you know remind our viewers also that um Zoe won an award for a documentary she did and um on um race and class when she was when you were 15, which was, which when I said earlier that you're going to do amazing things, I mean, you're already doing amazing things. It's only up from here for you. You're just going to, you're, it's destiny that
0: you're going to be changing the world. <laughs> well, thank you. And I'm, this I'm, is I'm a great interview to have early in the morning me up for
1: the day. Um, yeah, I, I'm assuming you're in your twenties now, otherwise, otherwise it would be way too long ago that I interviewed <laughs> yes, you. Yes. Okay. Um, I'm 26. Oh wow. So is is that still is that part of your reporting to the extent you you can make it? I mean, they're very obviously complicated, fraught issues.
0: Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, I think that I'm really drawn to stories, reporting stories, especially about women on the kind of margins of society in various ways and some of the kind of struggles or obstacles they face and the systems in place that make it hard for them to succeed. So, um I've written a lot about women's healthcare in prison and I wrote a piece for the Times about how pads and tampons in New York state prisons were being used as um basically as bargaining chips and kind of being, you know, being withheld from women in order to make it feel like a scarce Commodity, wow. um, and I, I, I interviewed one woman who was arrested, and she went to, she was taken to a police holding cell, and they told her that, uh, and she had her period, and she asked for a pad, and they they told her they they would give her a pad, but they needed to call an ambulance because they didn't have any on site, so they called an ambulance and got a sterile gauze pad, which was the only thing they were they gave her then. So, I mean, that's one example, but I'm working on a story right now, which has not come out yet, but is about um women leaving domestic violence in new york at, who are who are trying to get divorced and they're basically just trapped in both financially and legally they're kind of trapped in these abusive marriages so I think that you know i'm generally interested in in that type of story, and sometimes it broadens out so that um I also wrote a piece about dental care and how you know people in poverty basically you know are getting sick from their teeth, having no dental care. And it seems like this kind of marginal issue, but it's actually really affects people and makes them unable to go to work and unable to eat and, you know, have really low self-esteem and have various other health problems. So I think that that does kind of affect all of my reporting that that lens. How are you able to
2: report on these really? I mean, as you're telling me these stories, my heart is just sinking. And how are you able to report on these things, like these very emotional things, being able to keep calm and, you know, keep that journalistic objectiveness or can you?
0: Yeah, I mean, part of the I think a big part of it is being able to tell a story in a way that will affect a reader and uh, maybe affect someone who can actually make a policy change. And so I kind of keep that in mind as I'm reporting it to feel like, you know, ultimately, I hope this is going to help these people and potentially affect change. And, you know, I I like working at a place that is known for its objectiveness and it's very credible because of that. And so people are not inserting their opinions into reporting and they're very focused on, um, you know, how to make it the most the most bulletproof in terms of facts and in terms of the reporting and storytelling as, as possible, because I think that makes a story much stronger and able to reach a, a bigger audience.
1: So do you see the, um, did the Jewish identity you grew up with or, or that you still maintain, has it shaped your, your interest or approach to, to journalism?
0: Yeah, I think it has. I mean, I'm I'm very interested in stories about ritual and, you know, questions of community and faith. And I kind of, I kind of like writing stories about people who are rethinking things or maybe modernizing, but kind of are deeply rooted in tradition. I wrote a story that, that I published, um, I think last summer, that was about Jewish families who are rethinking circumcision or you know creating new rituals around circumcision where they're not actually doing a cutting but they're doing something else and that was such a fun piece to report and write because you know I I kind of dove into this world that I had grown up in and it was just very interesting to talk to a lot of people about it.
2: And you also come in with another background cuz your your mother's a rabbi? Yes. So what does that you do a to reconstructionist the way- rabbi. A reconstructionist rabbi on top of that? <laughs> so what does that do? And how do you think that impacts the way you um, seek stories and um, how you write your pieces?
0: Uh, well, sometimes I'll ask her, I mean, for that circumcision piece, I just said, you know, do you know people who are doing this or who would want to talk to me? You know, <laughs> I was kind of doing some resource. sourcing for her. And this is,
1: um, <laughs> Julie Greenberg of Congregation Lev HaIr, right in yes. in Philadelphia. Okay,
0: that's right. Um, yeah, and it's it's funny because I was working on a Nick was writing a column about women clergy, which is how we reconnected. But I was kind of reaching out to various um, seminaries and rabbinical colleges to see, you know, what percentage of people in your in your classes are women now. And I was that was another. Yeah, instance of kind of sourcing through my mom or through my <laughs> through the Jewish communities because I I kind of you know I knew who to talk to at RRC or they pointed me in the right direction and you know it was great.
1: I mean, I think there's any of us could come up with an imagination of what it's like to grow up the the child of a of a rabbi, and <laughs> I mean, is it? I mean, is 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 this? Is it just? judaism just there all the time or or is it just normal like what what is it like growing up well that,
2: normal for her is normal right. but
1: i i know right normal <laughs> for each of us is normal but <laughs> right. how would you describe it for somebody who didn't grow up uh in, in in that kind of setting
0: um it was pretty fun i went to a lot of weddings that she did as a child and yeah we just had you know judaism kind of as part of our life and we were very much part of a Jewish community that we would celebrate with and go to services with and just kind of, you know, live our live our lives alongside, which was a, a really nice part of it. But I don't know if that's really specific to being a rabbi. But we, you know, we'd go to services sometimes that she led or we'd go to a wedding she was officiating. And that was kind of a fun part
2: you so hear these, these fun things about going to weddings. My my partner's family has a funeral home. So like I hear about all the funerals and stuff that they did and you don't you don't hear about weddings so much. Oh, so. uh, yeah. That's really <laughs> That pleasant. sounds so pleasant, these weddings. Yes. But what does that do? I mean, you're also a young person and we're also, you know, talking about how do we engage you know, the younger, the young adults and get them engaged in Judaism. Um, And you are still pretty engaged in the Jewish community and you very much identify as Jewish. Uh, Does your background being the child of a rabbi influence that? Or is there something else that's driving you to still stay connected?
0: I mean, for me, it's been sometimes hard to be connected when I'm away from, home because I'm so used to, well, because I think my mom is a great rabbi, you know, I'm a little bit biased and I just, (laughs) and I feel very connected to kind of the type of Judaism that I grew up with and, um, was around, which is, it's reconstructionist, but it's also some renewal. So it's a little bit, (laughs) I don't want to say on the fringes, but it is a little bit on the fringes. It's not as, um it's not as mainstream and I have found it kind of hard to find other communities that are like that. So it's sometimes been a little bit, um, you know, disheartening or something. Cause I'll go to a synagogue and I'm like, this is not what I'm looking for at all. But I, I do think that's also just the nature of like looking for a synagogue. You just always feel like it's not exactly what you want. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, so that's been, that's been hard, but then in, in another way, it's, it's, I, I know that there is a community that I do like. So it's kind of like just trying to figure out how I can have that or recreate that myself.
1: I think it's fair to say that you grew up in, in something of a non-traditional family structure. Are you able to to talk about that at all and maybe
0: yeah, tease out a little
1: I, bit of how that shaped you?
0: Yeah. So I grew up with a single mom and she was a single mom by choice and we had donor dads, and then my two younger siblings are adopted. So we kind of had a, a family that she created and exactly how she wanted to do it. Um, and yeah, I think it's kind of a, I think it's kind of an example of like the, what seems cutting edge at the time then becomes like more mainstream and it becomes more, um, I don't know, more widely accepted. It, it was so funny because my mom came to the times and I was showing her around. And it turned out that day that one of her friends was on the front page of the times for being um, like another rabbi for being, you know, part of this Jewish and Muslim interfaith coalition. And it was just kind of an amazing example of like these, you know, have been her friends for a really long time. And obviously like they kind of have this really activist Jewish community. And then, Coming to see that it's like, look, it's on the front page of the national newspaper, basically, it's sort of like the time has come and so I, I sort of feel that way a little bit about my family too that you know i I grew up and it was more alternative and now I feel like you know it's, it's more more common
1: do you and your siblings have different levels of involvement engagement with with Judaism and your Jewish identity or is or is you all kind of have similar takes.
0: Um, we definitely have different levels of involvement. I, I mean, I don't think any of my siblings are super involved in Judaism, but I think we all we all identify as Jewish in various ways and that might change, you know, when we start having kids or, you know, are kind of more settled because right now we're we're all kind of in our twenties or my oldest sister just turned 30, so it's still kind of like a, you know, moment of settling down and figuring out what's important.
2: I have to give such props to your mom because here, you know, we're, we're meeting you and all of the wonderful things that you've done, even, you know, from as a teenager and look at what you're doing now and also to be a leader of um, of a community. um that's really that's really difficult and that takes a lot of energy and that takes a lot of love and it sounds like your mom just had plenty to give and
0: that's it's true that's wonderful. she's pretty amazing
1: yeah anyone who's ever had a conversation with me for more than 30 seconds knows I have I have uh, two daughters uh seven and four and they take everything I've got and I've got uh, a, a full uh a full partner in raising them. So I don't know. Uh, See, this is five cute. seems daunting, but but I guess uh
2: cats. Cats is where we're
1: at, right? Okay. That's what I'm doing. I'm just
2: collecting cats at the moment. I'm uh, I I'm, I'm young enough to do that where I can just uh-huh. collect and they they don't need to be <laughs> body trains. <laughs> uh, yes.
1: I was I didn't I was wondering what do you think folks are that you know are looking for out of out of Jewish experiences? assuming that they are looking for something?
0: I think it is tricky because it's a kind of fine balance. Like I have found that I want to be part of a community that feels very relevant and engaged politically, but is not, is not hollow of tradition. And I think that's kind of a, that's kind of a tricky aspect of it because I found that some of the stuff in New York or in Brooklyn where I live, it's, It's like, come do this, have this dinner about, I don't know, it's like have this Shabbat dinner, but it's like seems totally, completely removed from anything Jewish sort of, except that it's, you know, they're trying to get young Jews. But then on the other hand, I don't want to go to like this staid old synagogue where nothing feels irrelevant and everything is just how it was done like 200 years ago or something. So I think that's the balance. I mean, I'm interested in ritual and community and, you know, ways to make ritual kind of be a way to kind of go through the seasons and go through your life. So that would be exciting to me. And then also just being really engaged politically. So I know, um, some of the synagogues here and I know in Philly too are involved in, um, you know, immigrant rights stuff or providing sanctuary to immigrants. I think that's really important. And then, you know also around the topic of of Israel I'm I'm always kind of um that's obviously also a tricky topic for synagogues to contend with with millennials because I think you know for me I don't want to be part of a synagogue that's just completely pro-Israel and you know has no room for kind of dissent so I want I want a community that's engaged and kind of you know able to actually think about those issues and act on them
1: what do you um I guess, um, where do you hope your your career kind of goes from here? You know, what, um, what box do you want to check off next? Or...
0: Well, I'd like to move into reporting and writing full-time. I think that would be really exciting and um, and really fun. That's It's a bit tricky to do in this media landscape, so we'll see how that goes, but that's kind of my long-term dream.
1: All right. Well, we're gonna wish you the the best of luck, and and it's really cool that we reconnected. And and uh, yeah, thanks so much. Hopefully, our as I've said, our podcast has a has a long life, and we'll we'll get to repeat guests, and uh, we can talk to you after you've broken some uh, some huge <laughs> stories. So.
2: And you can decide who's gonna play you in a movie that's gonna right, win an right, Oscar. Right. <laughs> Can't wait.
0: <laughs> thanks
1: so much. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you for listening. So please make sure that you subscribe. We are on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast Castro, any place where you can get a podcast. We are there. And make sure that you tell your friends about us and give us a great rating and a review to help people find our show. Um, If you have any questions, comments, ideas for episodes and guests, please send us a message on our website at trendingjewish.fireside.fm. And if you like what we're doing, you like the work of Reconstructing Judaism, you like our podcast, um, please help support the work that we do. You can do that very easily by going online. You can go to reconstructingjudaism.org slash support. L'Hitra
1: bye.